Our scripture reading today, if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open it to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. I believe the words will also be on the screen. Maybe, maybe not. Yeah, there they are. Um, We're going to read from Luke, chapter 1, starting in verse 46. Mary said, With all my heart I glorify the Lord. In the depths of who I am, I rejoice in God my Savior. He has looked with favor on the low status of his servant. Look, from now on, everyone will consider me highly favored because the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. He shows mercy to everyone from one generation to the next who honors him as God. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. He has pulled the powerful down from their thrones and he's lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and he's sent the rich away empty-handed. He has come to the aid of his servant Israel, remembering his mercy, just as he promised to our ancestors, to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants forever. And may God add a blessing to the reading and hearing and understanding of scripture. Our hearts and minds are open. Amen. Amen. I want to start today by talking about two birth narratives, two birth stories that you are more than likely really familiar with if you spent any time in church, especially around this time of year. And they both come right here at the beginning of Luke's gospel. One has to do with an angel of the Lord appearing to an old man who happens to also be a priest named Zechariah who is carrying out his role, uh, uh, that day anyway, where he was chosen to offer the incense offering in the temple. And then this angel of the Lord appears to him and says, do not be afraid. This is my paraphrase of the text. Do not be afraid. Yahweh has heard you. You and your wife, Elizabeth, will have a son who you will name John. The old priest, Zechariah, could not believe what was happening, but also what was being told to him. And he responds by saying, are you, are you kidding me? Do you know how old I am? And my wife's pretty old too. And for this, Zechariah has his voice taken away from him. He's hushed, he's muted, he's silenced. The second narrative goes like this. This same angel shows up. Luke tells us this angel's name is Gabriel. Shows up to a young and poor, really a teenage girl named Mary. Saying something a little bit similar. He says, do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor in the sight of Yahweh. You will bear a son and you will call him Jesus. And he will be the son of the most high. The son of God and his kingdom will have no end. Mary also responds, but she responds with wonder, asking, how could this be since she is only engaged at this point and she's also a virgin, the scriptures tell us. And ultimately she utters the words, here am I, the servant of Yahweh, and then those three words that the Beatles made even more famous, let it be. And a paragraph later, Mary then opens her mouth and she sings a song of prophecy. Now, did you pick up on the contrast between these two biblical narratives? 
On one end, we have Zechariah, who's an old priest, an old man at that. He's a holder of power and status within the community that he lives in, and he is forced to be silenced at the message from this angel. Mary, however, is a young woman. She's poor. She's often looked over by those in her community. She is of no status, of no reputation, holds no power whatsoever, and yet she is the one who has found favor with God. And then her voice is not silenced. It's amplified. You know how Jesus would often say, at least a couple times in the Gospels, he'll say things like, the last will be first and the first will be last. Well, we have that truth playing out right here with his own mother. It makes me wonder, where did Jesus get this idea from in the first place? A woman at the bottom of her society's totem pole has become, as one pastor has pointed out, the host of God's banquet of love. The theologian Kate Huey reveals Zachariah, a professional, licensed, learned, knows what he's doing, expert in the faith, is without a voice, literally, which sets the stage for us to hear from the women and the children. And we hear from them about what God is now doing in their midst. Sarah, uh, my wife Sarah, shared with me a statement that was made last year around this time by the author Cole Arthur Riley. Riley, uh, she pointed out that the sound of Advent is the voice of women. Riley notes that in the Christmas story, we find men being silent. Zechariah has his voice taken away. He can't speak. Joseph, Jesus' dad, does not speak. And yet Mary and Elizabeth's words are unapologetically at the very center of this story. This is the way of the upside-down kingdom of God, is it not? See, right here at the beginning of this God-becoming-human story, we find exactly how this God works and who it is that this God tends to lean toward. One takeaway that I think is actually really important for us to understand when it comes to the Advent story, but maybe all of life, is a takeaway or a a fact, really, that might be difficult for some of us to swallow, and that is that we do not get to decide who it is that God will choose to carry out his will in this world. We don't get to decide who God's going to use. We have no say in the matter whatsoever. It's not up to us. This young and poor woman of no status and no reputation from a small town that nobody cared about is chosen to be, and let this sink in, she is chosen to be the mother of God. Now we have a kid, and I know there are mothers in the room. How about mothering God? I mean, your child is great, don't get me wrong. She was chosen to be the mother of God. In the Greek, the term is theotokos, or theotokos, depending on who you ask. Theotokos is the Greek word given and the title given to Mary. You'll find it given to her in most Orthodox traditions. That is, like, Eastern Orthodox tradition. And theotokos means God-bearer, which, by the way, would be like the coolest inscription on somebody's headstone ever. Here lies Mary, mother of Jesus, God-bearer. 
And Mary would preach and sing and prophesy this reality that she is going to bear God in the flesh in response to what God has done within her, is doing for her, and is going to do through her. So I want us, with that in mind, to turn to this text once more and just hear Mary's words a second time. She says, with all of my heart, I glorify the Lord. In the depths of who I am, I rejoice in God my Savior. He has looked with favor on the low status of his servant. Look, from now on, everyone will consider me highly favored because the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Now remember, Mary's living in a day and time and within a community that by law, she, let's think about this, she's, she's engaged, she's not married yet. She, she's a virgin, yet she's found to be with child before she's actually gotten married. And by law, within her community and her religious practice, their tradition, she's actually not only going to be shamed and disgraced and be talked about behind her back, but she could be stoned to death for this. And here she is saying, from now on, everyone's going to consider me blessed, highly favored. The mighty one has done great things for me. And then she goes on to prophesy. She says, he shows mercy to everyone from one generation to the next who honors him as God. This God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered those with arrogant thoughts and proud inclinations. He's pulled the powerful down from their thrones and he's lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and he's sent the rich away empty-handed. He's come to the aid of his servant Israel, remembering his mercy just as he promised, just as he promised to our ancestors, to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants forever. I mean, it's a beautiful song. It's an incredible prophecy, but it's also one crazy birth announcement, is it not? I mean, we really like birth announcements. If anybody's been on social media, then you've opened up and scrolled at one time or another, well, probably every day, with just another birth announcement, another baby's being born. And it's a good thing. I'm not making fun of that. It's a good thing. But we see that our birth, announce, our birth announcements today are to, to be like creative and cute and maybe funny, but definitely clever and def, definitely social media worthy. And yet, at the same time, we expect when these birth announcements are made, and I think we should expect this, happiness and happy tears and excitement and joy and hugs and all of the warm and fuzzy feelings. And yet, here we have this young mother's announcement, which sounds more like, I'm having a little boy who, by the way, is going to bring with him a new kingdom that is going to turn the world upside down. I don't think warm and fuzzy work when it comes to describing this birth announcement. Maybe not warm and fuzzy. For me, the two words that come to mind would be radical and revolutionary. Radical and revolutionary. The Magnificat is what this is called in the Latin, and it's often referred to this throughout church history. The Magnificat is a song of radical hospitality, but also revolutionary love and grace. Radical hospitality, revolutionary love and grace. The author and theologian Elizabeth Johnson writes that the Magnificat stands in the long line of Jewish tradition, the long line of female singers from Miriam with her tambourine in the Exodus 
to Deborah the judge, to Hannah who ends up giving birth to Samuel, and even to Judith who questions the faith of Israel's ruling class while under the domain of Greece, all of whom sang, as Johnson reveals, and I love the way she puts this, all of these women sang dangerous songs of salvation. Dangerous songs of salvation. And all of these songs, their lyrics challenged life as they knew it. They upended the status quo. Johnson would go on to say, their songs are psalms of thanksgiving, victory songs of the oppressed. Now remember who Mary is, a peasant, a young woman for that matter, and she is the one that God chooses to change the course of history forever. In choosing Mary to carry and to birth and to mother Jesus, that is the Christ child, God is choosing to be enfleshed. He's choosing to be embodied within the very midst of the poor and the hurting, the broken and the displaced, the neglected and the forgotten, right there in the middle as they are being healed and made whole and nurtured and remembered, oh yes, and liberated. See, the problem that I have, and this is a personal problem, the problem that I have with so many sermons revolving around these words of Mary, the Magnificat, are that pastors tend to really just spiritualize these words and really to only spiritualize these words, which I don't think you can do with Mary's Magnificat. Because when we spiritualize these words, it makes it more conducive for us in our hearing. It makes it more conducive to our circumstances. We try to make these words fit into our way of living. And in fact, this is often the danger that comes with any, almost any interpretation of scripture, but especially with this song of Mary. See, as we come across her words, we find not only a parallel to the Old Testament song of Hannah, Hannah being a barren woman who cried out to God over and over again and eventually did give birth to her son Samuel. Mary knows her scriptures. She is, in fact, if you want to hold this, if you want to look at 1 Samuel, you can find Hannah's song in there. And these words line up. I mean, they are almost verbatim the same, talking about the same kind of stuff. But we also find in Mary's words a birth announcement that happens to entail a daring declaration that a new kingdom is coming with her little boy. And this kingdom will be a kingdom of love that will have no end. It's not just a song, it's prophecy, and it is political. We don't like bringing politics into the church, but fair warning, politics has already crept in. And Mary's words are certainly political. They are an allegation against the systems of authority, against the systems of power currently at play. Mary is living in occupied territory with the foot or the boot, rather, of the Roman Empire on her and her people's necks. The Archbishop uh, William Temple He was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the early 1940s. He used to advise his missionaries in India to never, ever read these words of Mary out loud in public. Now, why would he do that? Let's remember Mary's words once more. She says, through the coming of her baby boy, who will be the Messiah, God is going to scatter the arrogant and the proud and bring the mighty down from their thrones. 
the status quo is, and, and the, the people in power, this is all gonna be dismantled for the sake of the neglected. Hungry stomachs are going to be filled with good things with the rich being sent away empty-handed. These words are in every sense of the word revolutionary. They are inflammatory to say the least because Mary understands what her child will become and what he is going to do. Of course, William Temple did not want his missionaries reading this out loud in public. They could be killed for it. Jesus is the ultimate revolutionary. Jesus is coming and for us he has come and is going to come again to reverse human values as we understand them. The prophecy of Mary would terrify any establishment. It would send any, any throne into high alert, no matter who they are, where they are, or what century they exist within. I mean, remember King Herod's uh, reaction when he hears a new king has been born. You might remember this. It's often read this time of year. He orders the massacre of infants and toddlers, two years old and under, simply just because he heard a new king has been born. A, a baby boy has been born. And he orders the killing of all of them. This sends any establishment, any, any type of system of power whatsoever into high alert. Because it's a threat to power. These words are a threat to the system. They're a threat to the man, if you will. They're a threat to the empire. And at the same time, while they are political, while it is a, a radical and revolutionary prophecy, Mary's words are of the ultimate kind of submission. Submission to what God was going to do in her and through her. This was a song about the rest of Mary's life. Mary would be the Theotokos, the God-bearer. And while she says, let it be, and while she announces what will happen when God is born, I would imagine that she was often confused about how this was all going to take place. Because before her famous let it be, Mary asked, how could this be? And I wonder if that question came up more than once throughout Jesus's life. How many times did Mary question her own calling? I would imagine she questioned it a lot as she, you know, started carrying the Son of God within her. In her pregnancy, as the morning sickness kicked in, as the sciatic pain took over, as the back pain, not being able to get comfortable and sleep at night, as all this was going on, as, as she was probably in fear of what would happen to her when she gave birth. Because remember, we have modern medicine today. We can look at this text through the lens of modern medicine, but women didn't make it that often through childbirth in Mary's day. Nor did the children often survive. I saw one stat, and I look, this is the internet. I'm not sure how true it is. But 50% of kids didn't make it past toddler years. How many times did Barry question, is this really going to work? As I said earlier, um, we don't get to decide who God chooses to carry out his will in this world, or even how his will will be carried out. I'm sure these questions came up for Mary. She watched Jesus grow up. I mean, and we probably should stop here for a second. Let's, let me just say this, clarify. We know that God was fully divine, right? 100% God. But Jesus was also not just 100% God, he was also 100% man. Now, I can't do the math there and how that all works. But if he's fully God and fully man, then he was fully human, as the scriptures tell us, and we know that the Advent story tells us, Christmas tells us that God became flesh as a helpless, vulnerable human baby boy named Jesus. And this 
Jesus would grow up in a poor home. He would, in fact, he'd become a refugee with his parents, like right out of the gate. He would live out his formative years in this small northern town in the region of Galilee known as Nazareth. He'd grow up quietly going about his business, more than likely as a construction worker in the occupied territory of the Roman Empire. He is an unlikely character to bring about a revolution, a revolution that his own mother prophesied about. He'd spend his time with unlikely people, zealots and revolutionaries for sure, but also tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. He himself told people, I don't have anywhere to lay my head at night, which is just a really kind way of saying, I'm homeless. I mean, people from his own hometown, when he was going about his ministry later on, would even ask, wait, 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 isn't this Mary and Joseph's kid? How many times did Mary question, are we sure this is how it's all supposed to work out? But then, I think at the same time, as she watched closely to how Jesus lived and the things he said, she probably started to notice things falling into place. She probably started to notice her words being embodied through her son. For example, as Jesus preached his first sermon, he proclaimed similar words to that of his own mother. He called people to a radical change. He said, repent. He announced a revolutionary kingdom of love that was now at hand. It's now here. Mary would have every bit of motherly assurance at that family wedding when she would go to those servants and say, don't worry, my kid's got it. He'll take care of the wine problem. I think he liked a good party. Jesus was the fulfillment of his mother's prophecy. In Jesus, the hope that caused Mary to sing and to rejoice was breaking through. Love had taken human form, folks. Love had spoken through human vocal cords. Love was embodied as Jesus ate and drank and hugged and healed and laughed with people. Love was the radical change that Mary was talking about. Love was the revolution. Love began to carry out the words of Mary's song. As the crowds of sick and sinful, possessed, or even curious would encircle around him, Jesus would show them compassion and, yes, even mercy. The arrogant and the prideful that Mary talked about, Jesus would condemn while he would welcome the humble. The mighty would be taken down from their thrones because a new king had come. The lowly, the tapenosis in the Greek, describing the miserable condition and the oppression of the poor, are lifted up as Jesus cares for them and spends time with them. Even the hungry are are filled with good things, no matter if the amount of the hungry were 12 or 4,000 or even 5,000. In Jesus, God had come and embraced his people Israel, remembering his mercy and fulfilling the promise he had made to their ancestors, to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants forever. And love is the hinge upon which all of this works. Jesus was born in and through love through and in God's love for the world and through and in Mary's love for her baby boy. And his life modeled this love for all who could bear it. And not everyone could. I wonder, can we? How might Mary's story and her prophecy still be relevant to us today? Mary is chosen to bring God into the world, to bear God to the world. And what I want us to see or maybe take away from all this is Mary is all of us. Scholars throughout church history from no matter which Christian tradition agree that the mother of Jesus is the biblical model of what it means to be the church. 
of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Because she received what the Spirit of God wanted to do within her and through her. I like how one priest and theologian talks about Jesus. He says, Jesus is the representative of the total givenness of God. The representative of the total givenness of God. Which means, I think in this case, that Mary then is the ultimate representative of all of humanity. Revealing to us how to receive such a gift. And it's beautiful, isn't it? God becomes one of us through one of us. And really, I think this is when salvation takes place. I mean, Jesus, of course, has to see it through to the end, through the cross, burial, and resurrection. But when God becomes human, I mean, game over. (laughs) Salvation has come. And Mary recognized this happening. She submitted to it and she rejoiced because of it. The work that began in Mary, Christ coming into the world, upending the way things are, initiating and ushering in a new kingdom of love, beginning to make all things new. Now notice that. I heard one pastor say this recently. God, or rather, Jesus did not come to make all new things. Jesus came to make all things new. And Mary received this gift and let the transforming work of God begin with her. My friends, God is continuing this work. He's continuing to do this transforming work. And I believe God is seeking to bring us into full participation with what Christ is still doing in the world today. So will our response be like Mary's? I want to invite band folks, wherever you are, you can come on up and get in place. And as they do... I want us to just get real still for a second, to close our eyes if it's helpful, or if you want to watch the band people come up on stage, that's fine. Close your eyes, get still, maybe breathe in and out. And just take a second to to be. It's true that you are a human being. You're not a human doing. And I think for many of us, if we're honest, most of life, but especially this time of the year, when it comes to another Christmas present to get and to wrap, another party to go to, the miles we're going to travel to see family or wherever we're going to spend Christmas, it's chaotic, it's a lot of doing, but for right now, you have the opportunity to simply be to relax in the presence of God. God is continuing to do his transforming work that he began through his servant Mary and in his son Jesus. And he wants to bring each of us into full participation with what Christ is still doing in the world today. What will your response be? Are you open to receiving it? Do you have space in your life to even receive such a gift? What might need to change? Let's pray just briefly. God, we give you thanks for what you have done through your servant Mary, through becoming enfleshed in the Christ child through your son Jesus, God with us, Emmanuel. We want our lives to be about this, but even this morning, 
Let it start here. We give you praise. Help us to do that. May our praise through our time together and through our time apart, may all of it be glorifying to you. May it be worship that you find pleasing. Amen.